The Old Testament reading is Proverbs 37 through 9. The New Testament reading is 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. And that is the sermon text for today. Please give your undivided attention now to the reading of God's most holy word. Proverbs 30, verse 7. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Turn now to 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 17. We read Paul's exhortation to his co-worker Timothy. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. Whenever considering a particular passage of Scripture, one should ask the question, why did the author decide to make this point here and in this place? In other words, what is the author's flow of thought or rationale. And recognizing the flow of thought will help us to better understand the particular passage we are considering. When reading through 1 Timothy 6, it seems as if Paul brings everything to a conclusion with that marvelous little doxology of verses 15 through 16, which we considered last week. It says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That kind of felt like the end of Paul's letter to Timothy, didn't it? But as you can see, he was not finished. He has something to say concerning the rich here in verses 17 through 19. And he has one final exhortation for Timothy in verses 20 through 21, which we will consider next Sunday, Lord willing. And so the question is, why did Paul say what he says concerning the rich in this present age here? How does this teaching concerning the rich fit into his overall flow of thought? As I have said, it almost seems out of place. It feels a a little bit like an, an afterthought, but that might be due to the fact that we are moving so slowly through this letter. If we were reading the letter quickly and in one sitting, we might recognize that what Paul says here in 6, 17 through 19 regarding the rich does in fact round out the warning that he gave back in 6, 5 through 10. In 6, 5 through 10, we learned that false teachers do sometimes imagine that godliness is a means to gain, that is financial gain. And there Timothy was reminded that godliness with contentment is great gain, that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, and that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. These words are true. These are words to live by. 
But they do raise some questions, don't they? If it is true that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils, what are we to think of the rich now? Is it possible for a Christian to be rich and to maintain their devotion to Christ? Or do these wise warnings about the danger of the love of money mean that those with lots of money are automatically defiled? Stated differently, what does God think of the rich? And what are we to think of them? What does God require of them within the church? And so the passage that is before us today answers questions that were raised at the beginning of this last section of Paul's letter to Timothy. What does God require of the Christian who is rich? That is the question. And the first thing we learn is that those who are rich in this present age must set their hope on God. This is taught in verse 17, which again says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The Christian rich must set their hope on God. I think it should be recognized from the outset that Paul does not condemn the rich for being rich. Do you notice that? That is significant. Neither does he command them to cease being rich. Instead, he urges them to adopt a particular mindset, to have a particular attitude concerning their wealth. They are to be humble. Their hope is to be set not on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. And this initial observation helps us to see that it is not a sin to be rich. If it were, I suppose that Paul would have condemned them for being rich and said, cease being rich. Instead, No, it is not a sin to be rich. We are to remember that it is the love of money, not money itself, that is a root of all kinds of evil. And it is not only the rich, but also the poor who are tempted to love money. And so we are to see what the biblical perspective is. There are righteous and unrighteous poor. And there are righteous and unrighteous rich. It is not the wealth or the lack thereof that makes the difference but the heart, and as we will soon see, the behavior which distinguishes between the two. I think this is a very important initial observation. As you know, the world is so very divided, and it divides over many things. Three things come immediately to mind, race, gender, and class. And as it pertains to the classes, it is tempting for the one side to demonize the other without giving consideration to the character of the person. Have you noticed how this is taking place all the time within our culture? The rich may sometimes assume the worst of those who are poor, and the poor may sometimes think the worst of those who are rich only because they are rich. And I am saying this is wrong, brothers and sisters. We must not take part in this. Again, there are unrighteous rich and poor, But it is also possible to be poor and righteous, and rich and righteous. Men and women should be judged according to the content of their character, and not by these superficial observations. The world is so very divided along these lines. But do not forget that Paul was writing to Timothy, and Timothy was a minister serving in Christ's church in Ephesus. In the church in Ephesus, there were rich and there were poor, worshiping side by side. These were united together in Christ. And the potential for division in the church along economic lines was, and still is, very great. So, so you to think of this. In society, the rich naturally congregate and associate with one another. Do they not? Is this not how the world functions? The, the rich kind of gather together. 
they feel comfortable with, with one another. And the poor do the same. They congregate together. They, they find a common bond there, perhaps, in their poverty or in their status. The classes within society are indeed divided. They are presently and they have been throughout the history of the world, but it cannot be this way in the church. It cannot. In the church we are one in Christ Jesus. Rich and poor must enjoy this unity with one another. For they together are joined to one Christ. They are equal in Him. In Christ's church there is to be no such division. For we are one in Christ. How important it is therefore for the rich to think rightly concerning themselves. And rightly concerning their poor brothers and sisters in Christ, and conversely, how important it is for the poor to think rightly concerning themselves and rightly concerning their brothers and sisters in Christ who are rich. The potential for division is very great, brothers and sisters, but we must fight against it. Are they unrighteous because they are rich, we ask? Are they, the rich, Obliged to give all of their wealth away now that they are in Christ, so that all are equal economically speaking? The answer to both questions is no. But Paul does have something to say about their attitudes, and later he will speak to their actions. Let us now consider carefully verse 17, which we have already read. Our passage begins with the words, As for the rich in this present age. So, who are the rich? I think we should ask that question first. Who are the rich? And and really it is hard to say for sure. Every society has its classes. Our society distinguishes between the lower, middle, and upper classes. Some in our society are considered to be wealthy and even ultra-wealthy. Which of these groups does Paul have in mind when he says, as for the rich in this present age? Well, some are obviously wealthy. They know that Paul refers to them. They are rich and they know it. But I would propose that many living in this country are more wealthy than they realize. They might place themselves in the middle class or the upper upper middle class. They may not consider themselves to be rich, but perhaps they should. We should not forget how blessed the middle class in this country is. The middle class is very, very large when compared to other times and places. And the middle class does also live very well. I wonder if you have thought about this before, brothers and sisters. Consider the, the, the quality of life that you enjoy living in this country at this time. It is really phenomenal. Uh, we have an abundance. Uh, we enjoy tremendous comforts. Uh, we should not be ignorant to this fact. The middle class lives very well in this country. What we consider to be average or slightly above average might be considered wealthy in other parts of the world today and around the world in times past. And so, my simple point is this. When Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, he might actually be speaking to you directly, and you know it not. You, use, you are used to considering yourselves to be average, perhaps, but, but it might be God's perspective, and it might have been Paul's, if you were to observe your quality of life and the abundance of of possessions that you have, he might look at you and say, you are in fact very wealthy, brother or sister. And even if he is not speaking directly to you, even if you are not uh, in that category, there is something for you to learn here. For in this passage we learn something about the godly perspective on wealth. 
the phrase, in this present age, is also very important. For Paul will contrast life in this present age with life in the age to come. There is this present age, and there is the age to come. This must be a foundational part of our worldview, our view of human history and its progress. There is this age, uh, this age that we now live in, this age that we are familiar with, life in this world, and there will be the age uh, to come. There are no other ages besides these. This age will continue until Christ returns to raise the just and the unjust, judge the world and make things, all things new, bringing, bringing His redeemed safely home. And then there will be the age to come, that is to say, life in glory, eternal life, lived in the presence of God Almighty. We are to live for the age to come, brothers and sisters. So when Paul speaks of the rich in this present age, he refers to those who have an abundance of the world's resources. They have plenty for themselves and even enough to share with others. And then Paul commands Timothy to charge them. Uh, this means that Timothy, as a minister of the gospel in the church of Ephesus, was to command or order the rich in this present age to think and to act in a certain way. We are to remember that Paul had charged Timothy to devote himself to certain things, and now Timothy is commanded to charge those who are rich in the church to devote themselves to certain things. They were to have a certain attitude, and they were to do certain things in relation to the poor. Three things are mentioned in verse 17. The first two are stated negatively, the third is stated positively. First, Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. To be haughty is to have an arrogant attitude. And I'm sure you can understand why the wealthy might be tempted to think of themselves as better than the rest, as if their wealth came as a result of their superior intellect, talent, or worth. This is undoubtedly a temptation for those who are rich. They are tempted to be prideful. They are tempted to be haughty and to look down upon the poor around them. But the remedy for a haughty attitude is in fact found at the end of verse 17, where Paul reminds Timothy that it is God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So consider that for a moment. The wealthy have their wealth because God has given it to them. And even if their wealth did come to them as a result of their abilities, it is God who gave them their abilities. Paul speaks to this elsewhere saying, What do you have that you did not receive? Isn't that a wonderful question? You're puffed up with pride, you're arrogant. Why? What do you have? What do you possess that you did not receive? If then you received it, he continues... Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That is 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Now his focus there is not upon material wealth, but the principle applies. What do you have that you did not receive? Everything you possess, even your life, is a gift from God. Where is there room for, for boasting, therefore? Where is there room for this haughty disposition that you might have? Every good thing that we enjoy in this life comes from God's hand. This includes our intellectual and physical abilities. It is all from Him. 
Apart from Him, we do not exist. Where is there room for boasting, therefore? The Christian, no matter if they are rich or poor, must never be haughty, for they know that their very life is a gift from God. And add to this what the Scriptures teach concerning the nature of man. All who are human, men and women, young and old, black and white, rich and poor, have God as their Maker. They are made in His image. They are of equal worth, therefore, and are to be treated with dignity. This is why the proverb says, The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the Maker of them all. And so, yes, there are rich and there are poor in the world, but they are of equal value and worth. There is no room for boasting, therefore. A haughty spirit, wherein one man looks down upon another because of economic status, is unacceptable. It's unacceptable in the world, and it is certainly unacceptable within Christ's church. The rich in this present age ought to be humble and grateful for God's abundant provision for them. Secondly, Timothy was charged, was to charge the rich to not set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. This is the second negative thing uh, that Paul says in this passage. If you are rich, be sure that you do not set your hope on the riches, for they are uncertain. And I suppose the very same thing could be said to those who are poor. For even the poor may be tempted to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Can you see how this might be? The rich may be tempted to say, Because I am rich, I am secure and immovable. And the poor may be tempted to say, If only I were rich, I would be secure and immovable. Both err when they set their hope on riches. Paul wants us to see that riches are not good for foundation laying because they are uncertain. The trouble with this way of thinking is that riches are themselves uncertain. Riches may come and go in this life and certainly we will not take the riches of this world with us into the life to come even if a man manages to hold on to his wealth all the days of his life, he goes into the grave with nothing at all. Death is the great equalizer, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Rich and poor go into the grave as equals. Both leave this world with nothing at all. And so you are to see that wealth is fleeting. It is unstable. It is unsuitable, therefore, to serve as a foundation for one's life. We cannot set our hope on it. I think that little phrase, set their hope on, is, is interesting. I think it should prompt us to stop and ask, what is my hope set on? To hope in something is to look forward to it with confidence and a sense of expectation. And I'm saying that hope is vital to life. Everyone has hope. I think it is impossible to live if it is completely gone. Without hope, we, we languish and, and wither away. But hope may be set on different things. Some set their hope on their children, on their spouse, their family and friends. Others hope in their nation. Others hope in their health and their wealth. I think for most people, their hope is distributed across a combination of these things. But here is what we must come to terms with. All of these things are unstable and uncertain. They are 
temporary and transient things. They are prone to death and decay. All of them, all of the things of this, this earth, all of the things in this world are prone to death and decay. And if your heart sinks when you hear these words, your hope is probably misplaced. Hope is essential to life. And hope must be set on something. But the things of this world are not able to bear up under the weight of hope. For they are ever-changing. They're temporary. They're prone to decay. They cannot deliver, brothers and sisters. They certainly will not deliver in the end. And this is why the Apostle warns the rich, saying, these are my words, rich as you may be, do not set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. They will fail you. It will fail you in the end, my friends. Thirdly, Timothy was to positively exhort the rich to set their hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Hope is essential to life, and our hope must be set on something. And who is the one who is able to bear up under the burden of our hope? Who is the one who is able to bear up under the burden of our hope? Who is worthy to be the object of our hope? The answer, only God is. We are to set our hope on Him. This is a decision that we must make. We must take our hope, dear brethren, and we must set it on God, and He will not fail you. God is worthy to bear our hope, for He is not a creature that is prone to death or decay. No, instead, He is the Creator of all things, the source and sustainer of life. God is infinite. He is without boundaries or limitations of any kind. He had no beginning and He will have no end. He is everywhere present. His power is boundless and so too His knowledge and wisdom. God is infinite. God is unchanging. He does not improve for He is perfect in every way and neither does He deteriorate. Every good and Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That is James 1.7. Put that one to memory, brothers and sisters. There is no variation or shadow due to change in God. He does not change. He does not fluctuate. He does not deteriorate or decay. He is worthy to be the object of our hope. He is unchanging. God is faithful. He is dependable. He's the only one worthy of our hope and our trust. Hope in God, Paul says. Rich and poor must not set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And I would like to say just a little bit more about this phrase, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Perhaps you have detected the play on words here in this passage. The rich in this present age are not to hope in the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides. It is God who provides for us, and even those who are poor may say that God richly provides. He gives us what we need. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, as we have just quoted from James 1.17. And God is faithful to provide for the needs of His people But the rich must remember that it is God who has richly or abundantly provided for them. And you would do well to notice that the provision is to be enjoyed, the Apostle says. I wonder if Christians sometimes forget this. That God's provision for them is to be enjoyed. The things of this earth 
are to be enjoyed by the believer. The scriptures do warn against worldliness. Paul in the same letter has warned us against the love of money, saying that it is a root of all kinds of evil. And the scriptures do also urge to live for the world to come. We are to store up treasures there and not here. But the scriptures also teach that the good things of this life are to be enjoyed by God's people. I think attitude is everything here. You do not set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who provides, richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The, the apostle says, we are, we are to enjoy the things that God has provided for us. We are to not love them in the way that we love God, but we are to enjoy them. We are to keep them in their proper place, but we are to give thanks to God for what He has provided. And, and as I was reflecting upon this this past week, the thought occurred to me that it is the Christian who is in the best position to enjoy the good things of this life. Who should enjoy life the most, is another way to put it. Who should enjoy life the most? I think we should say the Christian should. We are in the best position to enjoy the good things of this life. The Christian is able to enjoy food and drink, family and friends, home and country, to the fullest because they know the truth about these things. The Christian is able to approach and appreciate these things in just the right way. These blessings of life, they have their proper place and we know it. They are good and they are pleasant provided that we receive them as from God's hand and use them as God has intended. We are to receive them with thanksgiving. They are to be enjoyed to the glory of God, but they must not be worshipped. Our hope must not be set upon them, for they are not able to bear up under the weight of it. I think stated negatively, if we do set our hope on the good things of this life, things like food and drink, family and friends, home and country, we ruin them. They collapse under the weight and cannot bear it. And so the Christian is able to enjoy the good things of this world because we know the truth about them. We are, to able, we are able to enjoy them in their proper place. We do not heap our hope upon them. We heap our hope upon God's shoulders. He bears up under the weight of it. But we enjoy the things of this life that God has provided for us. Think of the man who loves money. I did not say think of the man who has money, but think of the man who loves money. Though he may have an abundance of it, he never has enough. And he lives with a constant and nagging fear of losing what he has. So does he enjoy the money that he possesses? The answer is no, he does not enjoy it. The money is not the problem. It's the condition of his heart that is the problem. His love and hope have been misplaced. If his love and hope were placed upon God, then he would enjoy his wealth to the glory of God. But by placing his love and hope on the money itself, he finds it impossible to enjoy the blessing that God has provided for him. Or think of the mother who loves her children supremely and has set her hope on them. Strangely, by loving her children with the kind of love that only God deserves, and by setting her hope upon their health, wealth, and prosperity, she loses the ability to enjoy them. She loses this ability for she is constantly anxious that harm might befall them. Are children to be loved? Of course they are. They're to be loved deeply. Are children to be enjoyed? Of course they are. 
or to enjoy all that God has provided for us. But there is a kind of love that is fitting for children, and there is a kind of love that is fitting for God. And we must be sure to get this right. We must worship and serve the Creator, never the creature. Our hope must be set squarely on God and on God alone. The things of this world cannot deliver. And when we set our hope on them, we ruin the blessing that God intended for us to enjoy. So are you rich? Are you rich? Do not be haughty, nor set your hopes on the uncertainty of those riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Secondly, Paul exhorts those who are rich in this present age to be generous. Look at verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And so here the focus shifts from the heart to the hand. What are the rich to do in the heart? They are to hope in God. What are they to do with their hands? They are to be generous and ready to share. And we should not think that these two things, the heart and the hand, are unrelated. Those who love money, whose hope is set on riches, will have hands tightly closed. But those who love God and man, whose hope is set on God, will have hands that are open to the poor and needy around them. They will be generous. The rich are to demonstrate that their hope is in God by their generosity. Three things are again stated. One, those who are rich are to do good. They are to use their time, treasures, and talents for good. This is true for all believers, of course. Both rich and poor are to do good. But I do believe that a special obligation rests upon those who are wealthy, and it is not difficult to understand why. Two, Paul continues his wordplay and urges the rich to be rich in good works. If you are rich, then be sure that you are rich in good works. There are many who are poor in this world who are rich in good works. And there are many who are rich in this world who are poor in good works. But Paul urges the Christian rich to be rich in good works also. It should be obvious, but it probably does need to be said. It is God who defines what is good. God is good. And in this world there is good and evil. Good works are not for us to define though. It is God who defines what is good. Our confession actually speaks to this in chapter 16, paragraph 1. This is such an important subject. Our confession chimes in saying, Good works are only such as God hath commanded in His holy word, and are not such as without the warrant thereof are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intentions. That's very helpful. This must be said because men do have this terrible habit of deciding for themselves what is good and evil, independent of God. And though they may truly believe they do good, in fact, they do what is evil. I think here of the ultra-wealthy who contribute great sums of money to causes that are in fact wicked causes. They think they do good. The world might even call them philanthropists. But God may have a different opinion of their generosity. It is generosity that is misplaced. They are not rich in good works, therefore. Do you wish to be rich in good works? Then be sure to first ask the question, what is good? 
according to the scriptures. What is it that we are to invest ourselves into in this world? You do not do good when you give money to an unworthy or, worse yet, an unholy cause. At best, you squander God's resources. At worst, you help to advance the kingdom of darkness. And so the rich are to be rich in good works, but they must ask, what is good according to God and according to the Scriptures? And three, they are to be generous and ready to share. We are to imagine this generosity is taking place primarily within the local church. In some instances, the wealthy in one local church may share with those who are in need in another congregation. But the point is this, the wealthy in the church should be generous towards their brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need. We know this was the practice of the church from its earliest days. In Acts 4.32, we read, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This was the practice of, of the early church, and this is what Paul is here encouraging in Ephesus. Do this, rich. Look out for the needs about you. Be generous to those who are poor. I want to make just a few observations about this Acts 4 text before we move on. One, it should be recognized that this text is not promoting communism, as some erroneously say. Notice that the government did not mandate the sharing. And neither did the leaders within the church. Those who gave, gave willingly, and that is very significant. And this becomes clear in the passage that follows. Uh, you probably remember that story regarding Ananias and Sapphira. There's a lot to that story. But here's the gist of it. They sold a field and made a contribution. And Peter spoke to them, saying, among other things, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, this was your property, your personal property, Ananias and Sapphira. You could have sold it or kept it, and once you sold it, you could have kept some of it for yourself and gave it. What was the problem there in Acts chapter 5, except that Ananias and Sapphira sold it, said they gave it all, but kept back some for themselves. The deceit was the problem and so as we consider the sharing that took place in the early church, we must confess that the church still believed in and respected personal property. This is not communism, as some erroneously say. Two, the gifts that were given did not do away with the distinction between rich and poor so that all had the same amount. Rather, the wealthy were concerned to meet the needs of the poor. They saw to it that no brother or sister with, went without their daily provision. That is, they had their basic necessities met. Three, the rich in the church did not contribute directly to the poor, but gave the funds to the apostles who saw to it that the funds were distributed carefully and fairly. Now, I do not believe that this forbids personal and direct contributions being made from member to member, but there is wisdom, I think, in this method. The benevolence funds of the church should be managed carefully and fairly, by the leadership of the church, the elders are to oversee it, the deacons are to administer it. Uh, we know this to be true from the rest of Scripture. That observation, I think, 
needs to be made. And all of this agrees with what is said in 1 Timothy. The wealthy in the church are to be generous and ready to share. That is to be their attitude. This is what they are to do with their hands. And so I might ask you, if you have an abundance of the world's goods, are you willing to share them? All should give as an act of worship before the Lord. No one should come empty-handed to worship. Even the poor should bring something to give, even if it is very little. And the rich should give as an act of worship to God. This should be done regularly, willingly, cheerfully by the members of Christ's church. But if you have an abundance, may I exhort you to give above and beyond your normal offerings to meet the needs of those who are experiencing economic hardships in Christ's church. That is what this passage is here commanding. You know, some time ago, the elders did approve beginning the custom of taking a benevolence fund offering by passing the plate after we partake of the Lord's Supper and as we sing our final song each and every Lord's Day. I say some time ago, I can't remember how long ago it was, but I, knew, I do know that this shutdown situation happened and threw all of it uh, you know, off the tracks, as it were. Uh, the instability of the past years has hindered us from implementing this. But I think the time is drawing near for us to implement this. And I am going to encourage you just briefly here, uh, brothers and sisters, to prepare for this. Uh, we will continue to collect the regular offering through the offering boxes to the rear of the sanctuary and also online so that you can give uh, discreetly. We like that, uh, that, that custom. But we have wanted to bring some form of offering into the liturgy of the church as well. Uh, this is an important part of our worship we do know that not, will, not all will be able to give above and beyond their normal offering to the Benevolence Fund, and that is just fine. But it is fitting for us to remember those who are suffering in our midst after we come to the Lord's table. Think of it. When we come to the Lord's table, what are we emphasizing? Well, many things are symbolized here, but one thing that is symbolized is our union together in Christ Jesus. We have communion with God through faith in Christ, and we have communion with one another. It is a wonderful time, and it has been used as such throughout the history of the church. It is a wonderful time to remember those who are suffering in our midst. We are able to give in order to relieve their suffering in some way through the ministry of the deacons. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to begin this right away, but I am asking you to prepare for this for it is coming soon, Lord willing. Consider bringing a little extra to, con to contribute to the Benevolence Fund if you have been blessed with an abundance so that those funds can be overseen by the elders and administered by the, the deacons of the church to meet the needs that are all around us. I look forward to this, brothers and sisters. I hope that you do too. I was even thinking that this might be a wonderful way to encourage and teach our children to give, to give them a little bit to put into the offering basket, uh, to go to the Benevolence Fund, or to encourage them to use some of their allowance to do it. I think it is important for us to be even more mindful of, of this act of giving as a worship, uh, an act of worship uh, to the Lord. The rich are to be generous and ready to share. And notice the result. The result will be that they will store up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Here we have even more wordplay. 
The rich were warned to not set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Worldly riches do not make for a good foundation given how unstable they are, but by doing good works and being generous, the rich will lay a good foundation for the future. And this foundation will be treasures in heaven, treasures in the life to come and for all eternity. This sounds a lot like the teaching of Jesus, doesn't it? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Men and women foolishly labor to accumulate wealth in this life. And when they die, they go naked into the grave. None of None of these goods go with them. And here we are to recognize that this is a terribly poor investment. All of it is lost in the end. But the Apostle reminds the rich and all of us along with them that there is a way to invest in the life to come. And that is through good deeds. Our hope must be set on God alone. And our hands must be open and generous to the needy about us. And if we would devote ourselves to good works through faith in Christ, then we will be investing in life eternal. That is the only kind of investment that will endure the trial of death and last for all eternity. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your provision for us. You have taught us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. As we pray that prayer together, we know that you will be faithful to give us this day our daily bread. We look to your hand, O Lord, for our provision. Father, we know that some have more than others in this world. Teach us to be content, Lord. Protect our hearts from jealousy, from covetousness. And for those who have an abundance, Lord, I pray that you would help them to be generous. Help us all to be generous with whatever it is that you have provided for us, O Lord. May we be aware of the needs around us. May we be eager to meet those needs. May we truly love one another in Christ's church. Father, help us in this. And as we are, as we are obedient to you in this regard, we do pray that your love and the gospel of Jesus Christ would be put on display to the world about us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.